one. Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 50, Zelda, Majora's Mask, episode four. And back with us are my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wes Shantz, and also special guest, Mr. Benjamin Kozlowski. And Wes, I thought you might give uh, a less brief introduction to Ben. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Ben, you're there. How's it going? That's going all right. All right. Introduction. No. Uh, over. Yeah. No, no. Ben, ben has been uh, a real good friend of mine ever since college. Um, he is the first person I had on my first podcast uh, conversation on the Earthbound project I did. And uh, I just really respect and admire his devotion to games and um, particularly uh, these kinds of exploring the world, RPG, save the world kind of games, but also just, you know, the idea of games in general. Ben's a real philosophical guy. He's got a lot of interesting background in uh, pop culture, but also religion and theology and philosophy. So lots of cool stuff, I think, that he can bring to the table here. And right now you're teaching uh, community college classes or, or four-year college classes. What are you up to these days, Ben? Uh, it's a little of both. Um, the unfortunate situation of being an adjunct professor at this point is that no one is paying you enough to make full-time wages. So the best way to make that happen is just to get my foot in the door of as many colleges as I can. So yeah. this summer I'm teaching one session of intro to philosophy, but over the course of the year I teach intro, I teach ethics, I teach um, general communities over at Montclair State University. And for the first time next semester, I'll be finally teaching a mythology course. So I'm looking forward to that. Far out. Well, excellent. Well, cool. And uh, what are you playing these days? Have you started playing Majora's Mask again, or are you going off of what you remember from the last time you went through it? I did a little research, and but I'm mostly working <laughs> off of uh, old old memories. Um, I've played it probably three or four times through at this point. Um, it was one of my favorites as a kid, even though I didn't fully understand what I was getting into and was definitely daunted by it. Um, I remember being like very shocked at the change between the tone of Ocarina of Time and the Majora's Mask. Um, but I, I was also really excited about it. Like, I think it was, if not the first, then one of the first games I ever actually pre-ordered. Um, so like, I have very fond memories of, you know, waiting to go to Walmart and not being able to go the day that it came out because, you know, my parents had other things that they needed to do and being devastated by this. <laughs> uh, but so I have a very deep and abiding attachment to this game and it's only grown over time as I've sort of plumbed the depths of what it has to offer. Excellent. Well, yeah, well, throw it back to you then, Alex. How, how are you doing with the game? I know you've having some struggles and um, with your move just now, I know you kind of had other things on your mind as well, but. Well, so first and foremost, credit to y'all's younger selves and your current selves for being so good at this game. and. Hopefully, as this game becomes uh, a, a repeat endeavor for me in the future rather than an initial endeavor, I will improve at it. And it will become more like the nostalgia fest of playing Final Fantasy VII. Um, but man, a lot of credit to you. This really is very difficult for me, especially mastering that Gorgon spin that's necessary for that upper level um, in the Gorgon Temple, in the Snowhead Temple, in this particular part of the game where you really do have to master getting up to speed there. And if you fail, you know, you fall down to the bottom and you have to waste like another seven or eight minutes getting all the way back up there just to fail again, which I did several times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it is not forgiving. Um, just, it is a challenge. Yeah. yeah. 
And I just wanted to say, like, I can see why as a kid, I would have tended back towards the, the less action adventure RPGs and more towards like the Xeno Gears or the Final Fantasy VII, where it is a little bit more like reading a book, even though there is that sort of unforgiving aspect when like, you know, there's a lot of space between a save point and um, like maybe a big boss battle. And if you lose something, if you lose that battle, you lose all that progress. Mm-hmm. Man, was, was this bit, it really hurt my determination uh, quite a bit. It really was like going up a mountain. And, you know, I am doing this on a weekend now. And I have so many options now as an adult, unlike when I was a kid, that like it becomes all the more onerous trying to, <laughs> to master these, these technical skills in this game. And I, uh, you know, it's just, it, it is incredible the lessons that I think that it is bequeathing to a kid that, that, you know, you have to be determined and you have to build on your skills and you can't leave them behind. And, you know, to get to that next level, you have to manage your time correctly and you have to uh, execute skills masterfully and you have to, you know, and you do it in a timely manner. And, uh, yeah. I, I especially do think since, you, yeah, go on. Especially since uniquely Majora's Mask is timed. I mean, it's one thing to play through Ocarina of Time's more difficult sections. Like, I remember the Poe race where you have to race Dante the Gravedigger. That's tough, but there's nothing hanging over your head. If you screw up, you just do it again. But in Snowhead, you know, you're, you're doing this, but you're doing it against the clock. And you've probably been working towards this dungeon for, you know, a decent chunk of your three days. And now maybe it's day two, maybe it's day three, and you're sitting there biting your nails. Like, if I fall down one more time, I'm going to have to restart from scratch. Um, right. It's tough. Yeah, well, Alex, but you did get the fire arrow, you said, right? So is that, I mean, that's a that's some consolation. Doesn't that sort of re- reignite your determination a bit? For sure. And it is interesting to what extent this game is uh, always a venue of, of going through and then repetition for me, right? Part mm. of what this game allows for you to do is to understand the cyclical nature of time. And like in uh, Groundhog Day, you sort of refine your game plan as you go through multiple times and you improve the story, as it were. I guess uh, a theologian might say what, what the Christian story did for the pagan stories leading towards them. But, um, but it, uh, I mean, interestingly enough, it, the, in our first uh, big zone, the swamp, that's exactly how I had to do it too. I forget exactly what was the item that we had to acquire there that was the special item of the temple. Uh, the, bow. the bow itself right yeah. and i did get the bow and it did make it easier to go back through but it's never that easy to get through and it they are confusing and big temples and and i mean especially the the aspect of falling down and then having to go all the way back up it as it's just the game is really quite grueling i would say mm-hmm. Well, especially as you're in your Goron form, you're kind of lumbering around slowly to begin with, right? right. So you, you have to use it sometimes like to get through lava or when you, when you do have to break stuff or, or roll or whatever. So it, it sort of like limits the, um, the speed with which you can do it in that sense too. You're, you're kind of stumping around. Um, but once you have the fire arrow, I think that there should be some kind of shortcut that that opens up for you so that the next time through you don't have to do quite as much of the dungeon you can kind of skip ahead a bit and yeah, a uh, hopefully 
yeah, the ice blocks so many of the doors and all you need is the fire arrow and you can just break through it. Um, and I, so yeah. it should expedite the process. And I do like the idea and the symbol of having the arrow at first in the swamp temple and now the fire arrow bequeathed to me in the, the mountains, just as if it is itself like a, a light shining forward that will help guide me through the darkness now. Like that Hermes or that Ulysses-like fire that he finds himself in in the Inferno that, that once you've done it through the one time or gotten to a certain point, you now have direction or now mm -hmm. have the capacity to sort of see in a way that you didn't before that enables this passage through to go faster. It's as if you've earned the right to go faster through it. It's like the difference between an expert doing something and a novice. And uh, very much I am feeling that novice uh, status right now, which is, <laughs> and, you know, it's so humbling. I go from lecturing on Macbeth and, you know, and the Aeneid and, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy, and then I'm humbled by an inability to get through the game, you know, a children's game here. But, uh, <laughs> it's, well, I mean, I think it's part of the, uh, the work of, of reading next, you know, is being humbled by it. Um, that's certainly takes a different form when you're playing a game versus, you know, reading the Aeneid or whatever it might be. But, but it's, it's sort of the same feeling. Like, it's good to be reminded of what that's like, to just be, like, flattened by the difficulty of something and, and have to regroup and, and yeah, re, re, rekindle your determination again and again. Um, I, I'm, I'm very curious, actually, maybe from both of you guys, like, what's the difference between the kind of um, motivation that you have to play games and, and especially the kind of nostalgia? Like, if you don't play a game as a kid, um, do you still feel nostalgia for that game if you go back and play it later? Uh, or, or do you kind of find there maybe more intellectual reason to play it again? Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure if I have an example of something that I've played for the first time as a grown-up and then went back and played again and, and thought about in a different way. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, there have been a couple of games I've, um, that I've approached in that way. Um, like, I... I initially got into gaming with the N64. So when people wax nostalgic about their favorite NES or SNES titles, I'm kind of at a loss. Um, and to some degree, I've made an effort to go back and play some of the older games. Like there was a point where I played all of the original NES Mega Man games, one through six, bing, bing, bing. <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed it um, more than I would have expected. Cause like the first one is, you know, a little bit impenetrable, but then, by the second and third, they've really got their stride and it's really a fun time. Um, weirdly, more so than I've ever connected with like the old Super Mario games. Like I still have yet to beat Super Mario 3, but I have beaten Mega Man 1 through 6. <laughs> um, but at the same token, there are a lot of games that I'm finding now that I'm grown, like even games released in the last three or four years that I find have astonishing depth to them. Um, some, you know, are definitely, you know, in the nintendo variety aim for children sort of vicinity but some you know now that the now that the original couple of generations of gamers have matured and become adults there are very much games being targeted towards them for various reasons um like i just played a couple of years ago uh i played near automata which was fascinating it's this you know it is an rpg in the action style but the whole thing is like this existentialist 
examination of sort of our relationship to authority and whether or not we can trust what we're told and sort of like creating meaning in a world that is completely and utterly absurd or meaningless. Like it's some heavy duty stuff. Um, and I intend to go back to, to Nero Automata and other games like that. Numerous games that I've picked up since, you know, since they only came out when I was an adult and that I've since formed a serious connection to. Um, I think there's a role, there's a place for that now. Um, but on the, but on the other side of that, there's also so much, so much coming out now that is catered to our like more adult gaming tastes. I mean, to sort of, build off of Alexander's point about the difficulty that he's dealing with. Like there's an actual serious conversation going on about difficulty in games nowadays, um, where on one side there's a move by Nintendo to sort of include an easy mode in a lot of their games. Um, so like you can play the newest version of Mario Kart and you can turn on this little feature and it will drive your car for you. Oh. Um, so you can control to some degree, which way you go, but it will like keep you off of the ledges and keep you from falling off. Um, and some gamers are absolutely protesting against that. But on the other hand, like I can't get my wife to play unless she turns it on. Um, uh, but as much as it's nice to have, it's also not, you know, a guaranteed win. If you, if you were playing Mario Kart with the auto drive on, it will take you away from the ledges that are shortcuts as well as the ledges that are pitfalls. So most of the sneakiest tricks, most of the ways that you can like cut through areas and, you know, get to the finished fastest, those are still closed off to you um, if you, in fact, turn on, quote, easy mode. So, but on the other side of that, there's also, like, the big move towards these Dark Souls and Souls-like games, which are punishingly difficult and require tremendous amounts of repetition, and you've got to play through the same bosses over and over and over again, and it's a huge time commitment and a huge difficulty, but there's a huge audience for this because, you know, they remember playing through Snowhead Temple on Majora's Mask or, you know, doing speed runs of Super Mario 3 or fighting through the original Ninja Gaiden, famously difficult. Um, so I think it's interesting how that's matured and how the medium has grown to fit like an, a game educated gamer so to speak yeah well and it's also people who grew up with these games who are now making games i guess like mm -hmm. they, they must have been informed by their experience and you know that's that's what, what's so weird to think about is like the very first generation of game designers didn't have really anything to to build upon like they kind of started from scratch um, whereas now everything sort of echoes back to something before it in, in the way that we're familiar with, with, you know, literature and, and stuff like that. So I think it's a, it's a real interesting time. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't played, I don't think any of those games, including the Mega Man's that you mentioned. Um, oh. <laughs> I, I have played some of the Mega Man games, but not the originals. And, and I haven't played Nier Automata. That looks really interesting though. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll check it out. Um, yeah, I, I think, well, if we aren't gonna get through Snowhead this time, we should we should shelve that for now and, and go back to Clock Town maybe, um, and just like sort of explore that area a bit. Uh, I, I'd be interested, Alex, what your impressions have been of Clock Town's bar, where you wind up each time you restart the game uh, <laughs> and, and give it another shot. 
Well, you know, frankly, I don't spend a lot of time in Clocktown, but I've been thinking about the idea of the, the starting point of a game, especially after having seen um, like a 40-minute piece, 40 piece of analysis on the Ocarina of Time as the saddest story you've never heard or whatever it was called. I think I sent you a link to that a couple days ago. Good, good use of a Friday night. Um, but it was making me think about the conceit of a starting town and what, how, how, how the town is a, the real starting point of this game and not that which comes before, which I would call prologue. And in what way the, uh, the starting point in an RPG or action RPG is like the poem to a poem or like an epic poem. And so um, the fact that it focuses on time after coming from the ocarina of time, uh, it's a direct sequel, right? You are the exact same link, sort of breaking with tradition, funnily enough. Um, but that there was a stage of time, too, if, if I recall, uh, or there was a goddess of time in the, uh, who helped to make the Triforce in general. One of you might remember, uh, but I know, I know that yeah. they were, yeah, go on. Yeah, they've got the, the myth that you hear in Ocarina of Time when you first go into the temple, and there are the three goddesses, Din, Nairu, and Furor, who represent like the three pieces of the Triforce, power and wisdom and courage. Courage, yeah. Yeah, um, okay. and they're, they're responsible for making it. But, um, and so, okay, so not one of them is directly time, but the theme of time comes through, and not only having the Ocarina of Time, which the game is named for, it, and but also the fact that you you transition time through the use of the master sword you you jump what is it I think seven years into the future and then back into the past and um, so time is a major aspect of that first game and I've made the claim in uh, at the beginning of playing through this game that it almost seems as if you are playing through an underworld or a sort of uh, not necessarily hell but definitely like an afterlife sort of scenario like a shadow world. The fact that you come back to a clock-like place, um, I think, uh, is a nod to the potential that time is now done for Link, um, that he is dead, but also um, is sort of a nod towards the, the cyclical nature of time and the value of repetition and what you see as you continue to roll forward, um, just very generally. Yeah, I, I'm... I definitely think the Termina, sort of the world of Majora's Mask, does have this kind of dark reflection of what's going on in Ocarina of Time and Hyrule prop. Um, I, I push back against the idea of it being an afterlife because it is very concerned with time, but it's hard to sort of push that as being after time. Like there is that apocalyptic looming horror over everyone, but what gives it such pathos is the fact that it is immediate, like it is destruction mortality is upon them as opposed to having already taken them. Um, and especially because it does deal so much with death because there are so many characters who are either fighting against death or who you bring back from death in some form or another who, um, who are sort of like grappling with their own mortality. Uh, I mean, it, it pervades this game. Uh, so like we could definitely see it as being a sort of afterlife for the events of Ocarina of Time, but within its own context, it's very alive and well, almost like dangerously alive, I think. That's, that's sort of 
defines the entire game that it's just bursting from the seams with these characters and these situations and these people in conflicts um, and these peoples in conflict and everyone is on the brink of destruction um, it's it's like they're all trying to get their last gasp in that they're all fighting viciously to survive the next three days while this moon just continuously looms closer and closer yeah i i mean i think the the message of of death is woven in powerfully um but i'd agree that there there does seem to be this um kind of permeability uh in the game between like is it an afterworld or is it um sort of on the threshold of of the afterlife or something like that like like so one one example is the um the dancer uh there's the spirit of the dancer that you can meet out there on those um almost mushroom shaped uh, outcroppings of rock uh, between um, Termina and, or rather Clocktown and uh, the mountain. Mm-hmm. This, uh, this dancer appears, I think at midnight um, on, on the dot, he'll, he'll just like pop into existence there. And this weird sort of um, exotic sounding music will be playing like uh, on some kind of nasal sounding instrument. And, and he's doing this uh, pretty creepy dance but um, like like with other characters, if you play for him this song of healing, he is is pacified, and uh, his tradition will be passed on in the form of this mask, which has his creepy uh, snake-like head emerging from it, <laughs> from like a weird uh, flesh-colored neck that you, that covers your face. And and when you wear this mask, you can do that dance that you saw him doing. And so, of course, you have to go and, and find the, the dancing troupe who are um, trying to come up with some kind of uh, dance for the, for the carnival, right? Um, and if you teach them the song and dance routine, then they are really quite taken with you and they uh, call you master and they are so thankful that they give you a piece of heart, I think. Mm-hmm. So you, you sort of see this like this motion between um, yeah, life and like the tension of life in, in the dancers who need something really badly for their sort of sense of identity, like what they're supposed to be. Um, and once you teach it to them and it becomes theirs, they make it their own, they reward you with this thing which extends your life, right? Like your actual health gets bigger the more people that you help and the more of these heart pieces and, and heart containers that you find on your, on your travels. Um, so that's just, I don't know, kind of a weird random example <laughs> but that's the one that came to mind as you guys were talking yeah but there is a lot there though um like i remember one of the criticisms that was leveled at majora's mass when it originally came out was that it only had four dungeons only four like we had ocarina of time with with a whopping eight and that was fairly standard at that point and then all of a sudden here comes majora's mask and they've totally skimped on the dungeons um, but in the process it put the focus on the rest of the world um, interacting with the other characters, doing these side quests, doing favors for people. And it's right that you point out that most of the time it's the gift is either another mask or a piece of heart. Um, on the one hand, you're like helping these people with problems with their past or with you know their identity and you accept a mask from them. And on the other hand, you use these masks to help other people and then they give you pieces of heart. They make you more alive. Um, help sort of fight off the tide of death that is coming so it's sort of like this affirmation of that very 
basic ground level ethical principle that, you know, you are who you help. Um, you, by going out and doing good things for other people, make the world exist better in the sort of medieval sense. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really, I think, powerful way to, to look at it. Um, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd go that far in, in terms of like existence and being, but, mm -hmm. but maybe, right, like maybe if, if, if this helps you um, defeat Medora's Mask and save the world, then, then being itself is more, I don't know, established as a result of your quest or something like that. Um, that's a really an interesting level of, uh, well, you know, because like we mentioned these goddesses, um, they play a pretty big role in the, the Ocarina of Time game. Uh, they're, they're more in the background here. We have instead these giants. They're, they're almost more fundamental, like earth, you know, spirits, these giants that um, you call from the four corners of, of the world to come in and save uh, everyone from the, the moon crash, right? So there, there's something kind of interesting there. It's not precisely um, religious in, in that, like, you know, that sense of worshiping goddesses, but these giants do seem to have, um, you know, a connection to the, the earth and there, there's maybe more of a nature worship kind of thing going on with this game. Um, I, I don't know quite where to go with that, but uh, it just strikes me that that, um, that idea of the goddess of time, I think is mentioned, but we don't have like the temple of time, you know, in this game, we, we don't have anything like that in Clock Town. And so we have the Clock Tower, sort of the central focal point. Well, that was a claim that was made by, by that piece of scholarship that I sent you, Wes, about uh, the Ocarina of Time, that Shintoist elements are is present in that, you know, nature worship and the value of things in nature being, uh, being correctly made because, you know, they're honed against nature, which is the realest reality there can be. Uh, and also in the works of Hayao Miyazaki, of course, there's some direct parallels between Princess Mononoke and Ocarina of Time made. So I think when you look at the action of what you do in these temples, which is, you know, uh, unpoison water or uh, sort of rejuvenate, heal water while also healing souls and uh, to restore, you know, uh, fire or stop freezing uh, a people who in the last game lived in a volcano, right? because people are frozen, there's something unnatural. I, it's funny, I just taught Macbeth, and it's as if, if through his unnatural murder, uh, unnatural things happen in reality as well as in his imagination too, there being sort of an unus mundus idea. It's, it's almost as if the ethical and sort of being um, statement that's being made here is that in acting uprightly, you purify the world around you. And that's what Link is particularly good at doing when he is embodying the hero. Um, and I would also disagree that this game uh, only has four dungeons. It only mm -hmm. has four dungeons when you look at it atemporally. When you look at, say, for instance, how I have to go through each dungeon, which is at least twice, <laughs> I, think, I think you start to see sort of what Ben is saying about the sort of Hegelianness of this game and that when you look at it, at it along just one narrative, uh, the subjective narrative of, say, Link, and only one path through, it's very narrow. But when you start to notice all the things happening in all the different days and all the different causalities between them and the different ways you can relate to them, and you start to fill up this, your, you know, your planner or your picture book 
which actually gives you a different ending, you start to get closer to what the Hegelians call that objective consciousness and that sort of atemporal or cyclical consciousness that Dante would talk about. You start to see much more of what is actually happening and your place within things. And I think this game does do a good job of uh, uh, that contrast and perspective. Yeah, one of the things that I definitely wanted to sort of point out today, uh, talking about like the side quests and the interactions between characters and these sort of ch interwoven chains of causality, um, it's striking to me that there's um, there's an actual contradiction in the side quests. Um, like one of the first side quests that you can stumble across after, I mean, even when you're out, when you're the Deku scrub, which is kind of poignant. Um, on the on the around midnight of the first day, if you're hanging out in I think it's the northern section of Clocktown, uh, you can witness a burglary. Um, there's this little old lady carrying a bag, and she's like walking kind of unsteadily through uh, the path in the north part of Clocktown, and she's robbed. This guy takes her bag and runs away. And as a Deku scrub, you can't do anything about it. Like you can attack all you want. You can shoot bubbles at him. You can like do your little spin attack. He does not care. Um, but as Link, you can take your sword and you can slash him and he drops the bag and he runs away. Um, but what's interesting is that while this seems like a pure Good Samaritan moment, like you helped the old lady, here is your reward, the bomb mask, um, it's in fact stopping a whole other set of quests. Um, in fact, the whole, the whole business with Kefe and Anju, the same Kefe, and you're sort of investigating to try and figure out where he's gone and your gradual discovery that he's been turned into a child by the Skull Kid, um, that whole quest line relies on you not saving the old lady. Um, if you get the bomb mask, then the bomb bag is stocked at the curiosity shop and you do not have the ability to meet with Kefe because he like skips town um, because the heat gets turned up. Uh, so there's this sort of dual line uh, that you have to choose each time you play through any three days. And fortunately, you know, since you play through multiple times, you get to see all of these endings. But um, on the one hand, you can help out the bomb bag lady and get the big bomb bag in stock and then buy the big bomb bag and, you know, improve your bomb carrying capacity. And then if you do that, the, on the last night, the curiosity shop will stock the all night mask, which is the only way to get it. Um, but if you don't, if you do not stop her, the curiosity mask or the curiosity shop ends up selling the bomb bag at like hugely gouged rates. And then you can save Anju. You can help Anju and Kate meet one another, help Kate retrieve his son's mask and then ultimately bring them together for the forging of the couple's mask. Um, which like, it's striking to me that you have these sort of options that both of these positive outcomes cannot coexist. Um, so kind of like how I pointed out in the bit that Wes was reading a couple weeks ago, you know, you can't save everyone in this game. Well, there's a fundamental mechanical reason why you can't save everyone. If you save everyone, others will fall. Um, you, like save the old lady and Anju and Kefe will never be able to get back together again. And if you want them to meet, then the old lady gets robbed and the bomb bag loses their stock or the bomb shop loses their stock, I should say. Yeah. Um, so it's just a very interesting interaction there. That, so yeah, that's very 
troubling uh, from the perspective of like someone who wants to be a completionist, mm-hmm. like in the narrow sense, right? Which I think, you know, makes makes sense in in a more like linear sort of way. Like, okay, I, w- I want to get everything possible to get in this game, but you you can't, you literally cannot do it without starting over and, and playing through on these kind of um, parallel storylines. Um, so you sent, this is the last thing that you sent that we haven't read on the air yet. So I'll just read it out and then we can continue going through Clocktown a bit. And, and I do want to come back to uh, Cafe and, and that side of the story. But so you said, I'd strongly encourage you to spend a day discussing Clocktown. So we're doing at least part of a day here and its residents as well as all the side quests. I'd suggest doing it between your discussion of Second Temple Snowhead and the third of Great Bay, as the game requires you to visit the ranch and that makes for a natural breathing point. Plus there's a lot going on at the ranch with the alien and other various side quests, including an absolutely heartbreaking interaction between the two sisters on the third day. There's a lot to be said about Anju and Cafe's quest Mary as well, which ties into the curiosity shop and a lot of the other fascinating minor characters, how they interact with one another how they all try to deal with the impending destruction. It might also be profitable to discuss how these characters relate to their Ocarina of Time doppelgangers. There's some really interesting decisions made in adapting the models, like how the fisherman from Ocarina of Time wears a toupee to run the general store, but goes bald and wears shades to run the curiosity shop. The seven years older model in Ocarina of Time. So that's something I never, I don't think really thought about much was the the character models and how they're reused in Majora's Mask, but you're right. They come up in these sort of weird and interesting places. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Are all of them recycled in some way from an earlier model, or is like at least a few of them new? Um, there are there are quite a few unique models. Um, Tingle is completely new. He was invented for Majora's <laughs> Mask, um, so we have to we have to deal with Tingle because of Majora's Mask. Um, we also get, uh, like, Kayfei himself is a new model. I'm pretty sure he is not anywhere in Ocarina of Time. Uh, all of the, the Goron models and all of the Zora models and all of the Deku models that are, like, atypical, those are all new. And, in fact, like, some of the Goron faces and stuff are even a little bit off-putting when first you, when first you see them. Um, but other than that, most of them have been, are, are reused. Like there are a couple of exceptions. There are a couple of new humans hanging around Clocktown. but for the most part, the characters you interact with, they have a counterpart, like even down to like the banker guy who checks your head. He, he's constantly like banging his, his desk, right? He's, he's the guy in the market town in, um, Hyrule in Ocarina of Time who will like buy your fish from you. And yes. he is constantly banging his, his, uh, his like blanket on the ground to sort of indicate that he wants you to bring in your uh, stuff to him. Um, even down to like one of the most hilarious inclusions in my opinion is the, the couple, the lovers who like, yeah. they, they're in Ocarina of Time, like on, uh, first in the in the Hyrule clock, or Hyrule Town Square, like they just spin around and they're obviously super enamored with each other, and then you can find them again and seven years later in uh, Kakariko where they've moved because you know it's just Redeads taking over the the town square, but now they run a shop and it's Honey and Darlings like mystery shop where you know one day it's chucking bombs in the baskets and another day it's firing arrows at targets but they have them keep spinning and that's it becomes a joke like the whole room spins around them 
And, you know, you can literally watch them in this almost galling depiction of public display, display of affection where they're like dance and little hearts float up all the time. And like, they even have this awful sound effect where they're like, mm-hmm. like every time that they talk to you, it's like, they're still so in love and it's gross, absolutely gross, <laughs> but also really funny how it's adapted. That makes me wonder what what does it mean exactly when you call when you call Majora's Mask a dark reflection uh, of of Ocarina of Time in that respect, and and also does that in any way relate to the sort of cyclical nature of time or the cyclical nature of being that we uh, we see manifested here? Majora's Mask. How how does its reflective nature and its cyclical and repetitive nature um, how do those I, how do those themes connect with each other? I think the dark reflection comment, like one of the things that you notice in in um, Ocarina of Time, is that for the most part, the only bad thing that is happening is Ganon. Um, like Ganondorf shows up at the castle. Obviously, Zelda has some concerns, but things don't really get bad until after he's taken over. And it's only, like, you only get these little glimpses of Hyrule's dark past. Like, the Shadow Temple is filled with these references to how there were all of these bloody wars and horrible conflicts, but you never really get to interact with them. They're only sort of pointed to. But in Termina, the characters and their conflicts are almost always front and center. Um, even when you're just bumming around Clocktown on your first day, you'll run into bombers and how they've kicked out the Skull Kid and how there's a clear conflict there. Um, you can walk in on the, the discussion between the carpenters and the guards in the mayor's office where they're both fighting about whether or not to evacuate the town. Um, when you get to you know the outside, when you see... Um, like the conflict between the monkeys and the Deku scrubs and Woodfall, or you've got um, the, there's a whole mess of it going on in the Kana, although I can't even like scratch the surface of that right now. It's been too long. Um, But everywhere that you go, there are these conflicts. People are making themselves miserable. It's not some exterior dark force that's sort of imposing its will and making the world a worse place and thus implying that all you need to do is beat the big bad and everything will be great. Instead, in Termina, your actions are kind of, you're saving everyone regardless of whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. Like, that's your responsibility. You do not get to judge. You just stop the cataclysm, and then they'll have to sort out their own problems. Um, And in that sense, I do think it's a bit of a dark reflection. And in that sense, too, I think it's cyclical. Um, you get this idea that these people are kind of hurting themselves in various ways, Um, that these conflicts between the Deku and the monkeys or between the Zora and the guy who runs the laboratory, uh, that they're, they're happening without your help and they will go on whether or not you decide to help them unless everything comes to an end. Um, So, on the one hand, like you can see bits and pieces of that in Ocarina of Time. Like you can see how the Gerudo are very xenophobic and are not interested in having anyone outside of their race come into their area. 
Um, and the same holds true for them in the big fortress in Great Bay. Like they're stealing all of the Zora eggs and holding them hostage. Um, and anyone who comes to their door, they'll immediately kick out. Um, but in the process of that, like, I think that's honestly a more realistic depiction of the world around them. Like the world of, the world of Hyrule seems simple. The world of Clocktown is not. It's complicated. It's dark in the sense of being obscured rather than being, you know, fully visible. The world is not about the hero in Termina. Whoa. And then the cycles very much have to do with, you know, their sort of repeated interactions, the repeated conflicts. And your, your work is very frequently to break up those cycles, to, you know, do the Hegelian synthesis, to break them down. Um, to make peace where peace was not, to, as you said in the Woodfall episode, you know, to reveal what's actually happening. The monkeys are not, in fact, you know, at odds with the Deku. It was not the monkey who poisoned the temple. It was not him who kidnapped the princess. Um, so you've got to clarify that, and then things will hopefully go back to a better situation. Was that a, a grandfather clock that just rang? <laughs> Uh, it's not a grandfather clock. I inherited my grandmother's uh, kitchen clock, but it's an old, like, 19th century piece that, you know, her grandmother owned before she did. I apologize. <laughs> no, that, was, that was really cool. I, like, I think that should be, like, a sound effect that we work into every episode from now on if we can. <laughs> it does seem like perfect clock town uh, sound effect. I, I wanted to come back to uh, Cafe, because he's... Well, he's one of the first people that you see in the game, like when you finally do come out of that prologue element and, and you, you come into the, the square. He's running down from that little um, laundry area or whatever it is, and he's checking the post box. Um, and he is wearing a mask, right? He's got, he's got the Keaton mask on. Yes. And, and so he's, in a weird way, like a, a kind of alter ego for you. Um, he also won't speak to you, which is pretty unsettling when you're like in these games. Normally all you have to do is walk up to people and, and push the button and they'll say stuff to you. But he, he won't, he'll just go along his way. Um, you have to do a bunch of stuff before you can actually get him to respond to your appeals for like, you know, interaction. Uh, and, and that's different and cool and weird. Um, and he also is, as you do discover later, he's been, He's been transformed into a child form, so it's not just that he's wearing a mask, but he's actually, you know, physically been transformed, um, and that's kind of weird because, you know, as a person, as a grown-up playing the game, that's sort of what happens to you, right? You 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 sort of become a child again. You know that that's part of the fun of it. Um, that's part of maybe the danger of it, right? If you sort of get arrested in that mode and you you stop, you know, caring about things and you just the game not good, but but he seems to be, you know, trying to break out of that now. He's trying to break out of his his child form and get back to his like life that has been taken away from him, basically. Um, and he's he's one of the last, I think, you know, side quests within the game that you're able to actually complete. Like it's one of the most complicated uh, mask, you know, sequences to to accomplish. Is that whole thing with the thief and the couple's mask and and this and that. You, you have to do a lot of sleuthing by wearing the cafe mask that you get from uh, his mom, I think, right? In the mayor's house. And you go around, you learn about, you know, what's going on with him and, and the innkeeper's daughter, Anju. And, you know, you do have to go to uh, the fourth of the four 
areas, right? The 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 valley, right? And and that's again like the last place that you'll you'll actually get access to um, and be able to to handle um, <laughs> that long. There's so many ways that 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 quest can go wrong too. You, it's it's really kind of frustrating to figure out and, and get it all to work right. Um, and no matter what you do, uh, it brings you up to pretty much the last moments of the third day. So you you really can't do anything else uh, outside of that quest when you're doing that quest, which is, again, pretty unusual. It sort of forces you to really drill down and, and focus on something and not, you know, kind of play around as much and explore as much. Um, so, so I think that's a curious, you know, thing that they throw in there. At the very start of the game, you see something that you will, that will remain a mystery till pretty much the very end of the game. If you ever figure it out, it's sort of optional. You can just let it be a mystery, but but you know, like you said, you want to like try to, as much as possible, put things right. That's what you're doing in the game. So, I think that's such a, a strange and and cool um, example of these kind of tensions that we've been talking about. That that whole cafe story. Yeah, it's also. I mean, from a certain like when I think of Majora's Mask, as much as you know, I recognize that like the hero's journey is very much the core story being told with you as Link going off and saving the world. At the same time, you know, like you said, Cafe almost serves as a mirror image of Link. He is a child. He's one of the few other children that you interact with, him and Romani and maybe the bombers, and that's it. But what's also striking is that, you know, Majora's Mask takes place after Ocarina of Time. Link it has been an adult at this point. He's done the seven years older Master Sword routine. He fought Ganon, he beat him. He knows what it's like to be a grown-up. He too is an old person hanging out in a child's body. Um, so in that sense, they both have this sort of crisis of, of maturity um, that both of them have in fact experienced and seen way more than their childish bodies would seem to suggest. Um, but even more than that, like the that, idea of maturity it, it's just such a huge through line through both that quest and through um through the romani quest over at the ranch yeah. and as much as there's a part of me that's like yeah it's perfectly optional yeah it's a side quest i also kind of think that it's like the backbone of this whole story um that and, and you keep having to go back to the inn for various reasons. Like if you if you follow the bomber's notebook at all, you will run into these characters over and over again. You mm -hmm. cannot avoid Madame Aroma or um, the mayor, Cafe's father, or Anju, or like even if you hang out at the ranch, she'll point you back to Anju more often than not. Um, at the same time as it's sort of tangential, it's also very central. Um, and I think that honestly like that meeting at the very end of the third day when Andrew is sitting in the dark waiting to see if cafe shows up as the moon is like hours away from plunging into the earth and then when he finally does it's so moving i mean i cry every time that i yeah. play through that section and i am completely unashamed to admit it um just like they exchange their masks, they transform into the couple's mask. They basically say to you, like you have witnessed our union. We are married now. And I say, you go ahead and save yourself. We're going to sit here and wait for the morning. And God, I'm tearing up right now. Like <laughs> just that level of commitment, that level of 
I mean, it's such a profound romance in a sense. And it's so, it's so absurd in another because you see Cafe come up as a kid and this is what he's been worried about this whole time. Like the reason why he's hanging out in the laundry pool is he's, he can't go to Andrew like this. He refuses to meet her as a child. But when he does in fact show up, she just immediately drops to her knees and it's like nothing ever happened. Um, yeah. She accepts him wholeheartedly. Like it wasn't even a question. And even if he hadn't shown up with the mask, she would have done the same thing for sure. She waited for him regardless. Even, I mean, your role in that story is to make sure she does. Mm -hmm. um, have to send the message to her and say, you need to stay because Cafe is coming. You can't evacuate the town. You're going to see this through. And, and as long as he's willing, she is too. Um, so on the one hand, it is a very powerful romantic story. On the other hand, it is very much driven by the female character, which is itself a little bit unusual. Like Cafe is the one who needs rescuing he's the he's the damsel in this situation um and even when you do in fact like get the sun's mask you switch between being link and being cafe he's the only other character you ever take control of as the player which you know again implies that profound link between the two um so yeah it's just there's so much there so much substance so much drama so much depth um and like weaving around these themes of maturity and death and you know what how everybody reacts to this oncoming destruction and how Andrew is willing to sit there how she is willing to face the moon if it means being re reunited with her lover awesome I love it yeah well Alex did you have you explored Clockton uh enough to at least get to the um the Bremen mask that's the, the mask that looks kind of like an eagle that allows you to, to march around? Have you done that part? I'm not sure that, what I've done yet. I do know that I have the bunny ears. I have the bomber's mask I, because I saved. It's so funny hearing about that side quest because I definitely did save that poor old lady, but maybe not this time around. Maybe not this time around. Um, I haven't done any of the Cafe and Andrew stuff. So that's Ugh. all. And so My apologies for spoiling. Oh, no, no. It's by no means a spoiler. Perhaps an enticement. You know, you know how Romeo and Juliet is going to end in the beginning as well. And uh, all the more worth seeing because of that. But um, I, I think this has been fantastic. And, um, you know, hopefully we can get you on more regularly. And I know that Wes had originally wanted you to be a big part of this project. And, you know, we don't have a great track record for keeping our third on this sort of <laughs> endeavor. Uh, we, do, we do in the literature portion but not in the video game portion of this project well i'd be happy to appear again now that it's the summer things have calmed down a little bit so i should be available for the next few weeks if you want to have me around again fantastic awesome well let's let's plan on that then let's uh we'll we'll, we'll encourage alex from afar to persevere with the the dungeon but also explore more of Clocktown and try to get that horse back so we can talk about the ranch and maybe some of um of the great bay next time how's that sound got some serious work to do um, <laughs> <laughs> you can do it yeah i have faith in you looking forward to it looking forward to it okay guys well this is wonderful and looking forward to our next conversation all right thanks have a good one bye